0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music
1: and more. It is something that I try not to think about because if I think about it and I think about the fact that I'm probably never going to pay it off at the rate that I'm going, at my current salary, I'm I'm probably at the top of, of what I will earn. Um, as a teacher, as a classroom teacher, if I want to get a pay rise, I'm going to have to become a head teacher or um, take a leadership role. But I am the top band currently, and I just really don't think, if things continue, that I'm ever going to pay it off in my lifetime.
2: This is Gabrielle. She's a teacher in Western Sydney,
1: and she has a bit of a hexed. Massive, yes, unfortunately.
2: And what, what is that?
1: It's I just checked the other day, it's $68,000. $68,000.
2: 68000 So what did you study to end up with $68,000?
1: Yeah, so a bit of a meandering journey to teaching. Uh, but my undergraduate was a Bachelor of Arts in Communication, where I majored in Writing and Cultural Studies combined with a Bachelor of Arts in International Studies. So I wanted to get into publishing. That was my main goal. But I did a year abroad and I lost my publishing job, so came back and just kind of prevaricated a little bit and studied a Bachelor of Arts Honours in Cultural Studies where it was just a research project. Still didn't know what I wanted to do, but my partner was a teacher and I thought, oh, that's a really nice, safe, secure job. So I started studying my Master's of Teaching in Secondary Ed.
2: Hello, this is The Money on RN Summer. I'm Richard Aide. And in this episode, we're focusing on hex. Gabrielle has been paying hers for a long time.
1: Oh, it's hard to say, but probably since I was 21. So you were paying
2: back the debt while you were still accruing the
1: debt? Yeah, because I was working both at a publishing company and I believe I was just above the threshold at that stage. So it wasn't much that I was paying off, but I was chipping away. And then I started working at UTS and UTS gave me a lot of really solid hours. I was working in the student centre, great pay, which meant that, yeah, again, I could chip away at it. Um but yeah, probably seriously paying it off regularly since I became a teacher. So probably eight years, I would say. Right. So, yeah. But
2: you started you started more than 10 years ago. Mm. You've been seriously paying it off for eight years and you're at 68000 Sixty eight thousand. So what's happening?
1: I just keep seeing it climb every time I go and because I only really check it around financial year or the end of financial year when I'm doing my tax return. And I just see that number start to climb with the indexation. So what's the effect of that,
2: not making progress?
1: I think it just impacts the way I'm able to save. So I earn on paper more than my partner. My partner doesn't have a hex debt. She is bringing in more than I am. So she's contributing more to our mortgage. She's contributing more to our household, even though I am on paper earning more than her. But because of just the difference in our hex debt, as in I have a massive one and she has None. It does impact us in that way. So I just feel as though I am on the back foot because I see the potential of what I can be saving, of what I can be earning. And I am not going to ever be at that stage, which is a bit demoralising.
2: The indexation Gabrielle's talking about is why HEX has been in the news, On the 1st of June, whatever debt you have is adjusted by the indexation rate, which in turn is determined by the CPI figure for the March quarter. This year, that was 7.1%. The National Union of Students want indexation scrapped. The Greens want it scrapped too, but it's not going to happen. And overall, HEX, or to give it its full name, HEX Help, has been a real success. Journalist Stephen Matchett has covered higher education for decades.
3: I often say that um, Bruce Chapman, who came up with the idea of income-contingent loans, we should create a one-person peerage and make him Lord Chapman of the Yarralumla. I think it's done a great job. It's expanded access to higher education in ways that I don't think the Whitlam generation could have quite grasped and done it in a way that hasn't broken the bank for the Commonwealth.
2: It's also changed along the way. Andrew Norton's Professor in the Practice of Higher Education Policy at the ANU – He's probably the country's leading researcher in the field.
4: So originally when it was set up in 1989, it was a a flat rate equivalent to about $3,000 in today's money. That lasted until 1997, where it switched to a funding model essentially based on... Uh, student contributions being linked to the expected earnings of the graduate. So for example, because lawyers on average earn more than arts graduates, lawyers paid the highest student contribution and arts graduates paid the lowest. That system lasted until 2020 uh, when the previous government passed its job ready graduates legislation. And then it changed to be designed to incentivize people to take or not take particular courses. So, you know, arts went from the cheapest course uh, to the most expensive, about $15,000 a year, Mm. whereas courses like teaching and nursing were discounted to about $4,000 a year.
2: We'll come back to the job-ready graduate package shortly, because it's already having quite an effect. Let's stick with indexation.
4: I think it's possible that this current uh, period of high inflation... triggered what I'd call latent issues with the loan scheme. That is that over time, uh, as more and more people have gone to university, uh, the number of help debtors has gone up. So it's basically doubled uh, to 3 million since 2010. And people on average owe more. I think this is partly due to the the increases in student contributions that happened uh, in the middle of the 2000s. Uh, Plus, also, many more people are doing postgraduate study, often in full fee courses, which they borrow under the Fee Help Scheme. And so the average debt has gone up to about $24,000 per person, and so that was about $1,700 indexation on that uh, on 1st of June this year.
2: It's really starting to add up. Alison Barnes is President of the National Tertiary Education Union.
5: We have just under $75 billion uh, from 2022. That works out at an average debt of students of just under $25,000, which is an extraordinary level of debt as it stands, let alone if it's likely to rise.
2: Mm, Well, it, it probably will, and we'll get into why. So at the moment, how long is it taking students to pay those
5: debts off? Look, on average, it takes students about nine and a half years, which is an increase from about 7.3 years in 2006. And what do we know about the people who are carrying those debts? Well, we know there are about three million people with HELP debts. Uh, 300,000 of those are aged over 50, and two-thirds of people carrying these debts are women.
2: And those debts are having consequences.
5: There
4: are a number of issues. One is simply the effects on ability to buy homes, and this has been exacerbated by a ruling by APRA uh, last year, which required lenders to take into account the total help debt owing and not just the annual repayments as banks have been doing previously. And I've heard reports that this is causing banks to lend students less or advise them to clear their help debt first uh, in order to to maximise their capacity to borrow. APRA was putting your help debt in with things like credit card and afterpay, where there is a link between how much you pay, uh, how much you owe rather than how much you pay each year. Mm. But with help, how much you pay each year is solely based on your income that year, not your total debt. So that's one issue. Another issue is that some people are concerned about how help is interacting with other aspects of government services. So many government benefits and services have a means test on them. Uh, at the moment, you start repaying help at about $47,000 a year, and that is around the zone where it starts interacting with other benefits that people might be receiving. So we have got this issue of government uh, giving with one hand and taking with the other. And then there's the broader questions about, which are not really necessarily deeply policy-related, whether people are being prudent in taking out debt and whether they are taking on debt today, for example, to do an extra postgraduate degree, which may not actually be worth it, financially speaking. For some students,
2: all of this has been exacerbated by the Job Ready Graduates Package.
3: Which, in my view, for what it's worth, was a combination of policy thinking and culture warring. Undergraduates who are now in business disciplines, law, and broadly defined HASS, Humanities, Social Sciences, now pay a very large amount, I think it might be 80% of the cost of their Commonwealth place in the system. Mm. The Commonwealth kicks in the other 20%. That's way out of line the way it used to be. And that reflected the previous government's apparent perception that, you know, we've got plenty of lawyers, business graduates, humanities graduates, eh. What we need to do is focus our resources on teachers and on foreign languages and on STEM, science, technology, economics, maths.
2: The most privileged under job-ready graduates are nursing, teaching... And agriculture, which which was almost certainly a, a political decision.
3: Uh, you may say that, of course, I couldn't possibly comment.
2: So students training to be nurses and teachers in particular are much better off. Ag students too, STEM students. But there are some at the other end of the scale, like my daughter.
0: I do a double degree um, of international relations and public policy. And I started the public policy one this year. I've already done like a full year of IR and now just a semester of public policy.
2: Right, so you're a year and a half into what will be what? 5 years? Something like that?
0: 4 years, hopefully. Hope it's not 5 years.
2: So, how much do you owe?
0: Um, I think it's around 20k. Yeah. Um, for a year and a half, I owe $20,114.22.
2: So when you first saw that, what did you think?
0: I full on had a panic attack because I was, at the time I was studying for my economics exam and I'm not very good at it. And I was trying to work out how much it would cost if I had to take the class again, if I failed it. And I thought, hmm, maybe I can just drop it. Surely my debt isn't too bad. And then I opened that and I saw it and it scared me so much that I had a panic attack at my desk.
2: Did you see the number before the indexation?
0: Yeah, I think it was um, 19 something and it's just gone up by about a K in a bit and it'll go up again in August because I've just enrolled in my new classes but they don't get added to your Hextet until the census date. So it'll go up by, I think, like 7K.
2: So knowing this and knowing that you may have another two and a half even three and a half years of mounting debt. What do you think you're going to owe when you finish?
0: At least 60K. Um, Too much debt for me to think about right now. I just try and keep it at the back of my mind because it doesn't affect me right now, but I know that it will in the next 10 years when I'd like to buy a house maybe one day. And they go, hmm, you have... A lot of debt, and I go, hmm, that's so true.
2: Insofar as you talk about this with your mates, Mm. what is the attitude to it?
0: Everyone kind of tries to ignore the fact that it exists, I think, because we're all a bit scared shitless of it.
2: And Alison Barnes from the National Tertiary Education Union says they're right to be.
5: If we look at humanities and social science students, that debt burden is going to increase exponentially. So we're looking at 40 years to pay off student debts of around $100,000. Huge blowouts in repayments. Uh, Debt rates can start at around $60,000. But if you're looking at the areas, for example, that I teach in, which I have traditionally taught business and management students, you're looking at students who may take up to 44 years to pay off loans of around $120,000. I think this is extraordinary. I think this has enormous consequences for uh, graduates of our universities.
2: And law students, it's it's pretty similar numbers, isn't it?
5: Yes, law students are also adversely affected. And if you look at, I suppose, law students, uh, women graduating from law degrees will be even more hard hit than um, their male counterparts.
2: That'll be true across all of the degrees,
5: yeah, there's all of those factors, like women, you know, those, those breaks in careers, women working part-time, those sorts of issues. But also if you look at, I suppose, the salaries of people when they graduate, um, you know, women often start at a lower rate than men. It's similar
2: kind of numbers for the humanities, social sciences students and the business students and the law students. But aren't the business students and the law students actually going to be earning more and probably starting on more? Than the humanities social sciences students
5: certainly you know degrees can result in higher wages um, but not everybody who does a business degree or a law degree ends up in a highly paying job graduates don't always work, end up working in the fields in which they've studied. So people might undertake a law degree, but they might not get a high-paid corporate job in a law firm. You know, people's employment opportunities are affected by any number of things, you know, what's happening in the economy, but also what people are interested in. You know, people who might do business degrees might go and work for NGOs or unions which don't, you know, pay those uh, high wages. The other thing that can feed into this, and we heard this earlier with Gabrielle, is that people
2: and change their minds about what they want to study.
5: First-year students, for various reasons, often enrol in subjects that they, their family think they might be good to do or they think will be interesting and find that those subjects don't suit them, so they change. And that change is not necessarily a bad thing. Students should have those options, I think, to change, to study degrees that actually they might be more suited to. But we're finding, you know, as costs rise... Uh, that's one way for students to, I suppose, without really thinking about the consequences for the future, to accrue a lot of debt.
2: And though it's easy to see how that impacts the individual, Alison says it
5: also has wider
2: implications.
5: I think it has ramifications, not only for the students who's carrying the debt, but for Australian society more broadly. You know, we need universities to be accessible. We need people to develop the skills that they learn at university, not only for them as people, but for our society more broadly. We need people developing those skills so that we can deal with the the economic challenges we face in the future or the environmental challenges. And if you're looking at, I suppose, debts of, you know, $100,000, that really has implications, I think, for individual students, but Australian society more broadly.
2: Alison, your figures all come from modelling. All models are based on assumptions. What are yours?
5: Look, we've based our assumptions on wage growth of 2.3% and that indexation begins at uh, 7.07% but falls to 2.7%. So we've assumed that the current level of indexation will return to 2.2%, which is the average inflation rate over the last 10 years. We're not assuming that inflation will stay this high forever. So our modelling is based on indexation being at similar levels to the long-term average.
2: Actually, one of those assumptions, Andrew Norton has a problem with.
4: So they're certainly picking up on a good issue, which is the amount of time it takes to repay debt. But I think their calculations are giving way too negative figures, you know, 40 years in some cases. So what they've done is they've taken the graduate starting salary, and increase it each year by 2.3%, which is the average wage increase over the last decade or so. Now, this is, I think, a big mistake because one of the benefits of getting a degree is that you enter a period of rapid earnings growth. So, if we look at the census numbers from last year, in the decade or so after completion, earnings go up by about 7% a year on average. And what that means, not only are they repaying more, there's uh, less debt remaining to be indexed, and so the repayment times will be much, much less than the NTU's figures suggest.
2: Today on The Money, we're looking at HEX, which has funded the huge expansion of tertiary education in Australia, but also led to more than 3 million of us in debt, to the tune of almost $75 billion. At the moment, humanities and social science students, those doing business and law, are racking it up faster than anyone else. And as long as high inflation persists, everybody's debt will continue to grow fairly sharply. So what can be done? Alison Barnes.
5: But I think there are many things that we could do to address them. I mean, the obvious thing you could do is make education free. Lots of people talk about that like it's a pie in the sky. But if you made education free, we see that has great, I suppose, impacts on uh, students' accessibility of education and the like. So free education is is one solution. But that doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone. The, our current federal government is running a review into higher education. And I'm hopeful that that review process will will really look at the damaging impact the Jobs uh, Ready Graduate package is having on students and student debt, but also look at how we deal with these issues of students incurring these astronomical debts. The review into higher education that Alison
2: mentions is called The Universities Accord. Stephen Matchett.
3: The Accords, terms of reference, are very broad ranging and I don't know what Mary O'Cain, who chairs the, chairs the panel, probably one of the great policy thinkers of our generation, I don't know what she, she and her colleagues are going to come up with, but I would be surprised if student funding reform was at the top of their priorities. Um, Minister Clare has made it pretty clear that he sees a core reform objective as to be increased access to higher education from people in the bottom... SES Quintile. Mm-hmm. They have always lagged behind the rest of the country. And I think he wants to see more more young young and old people uh, from that those sorts of disadvantaged backgrounds in the system. Uh, how that would fit with, you know, in some ways, reforming Hex to reduce the cost, I am not sure. The Minister said a couple of things in Parliament that sort of indicates to me that he's not sure either, and when in doubt, don't. Who knows?
2: The final version of the review will be delivered at the end of the year. But the minister, Jason Clare, already has an interim report, which he's expected to release later this month. One group in
3: particular will be
2: poring over the details.
3: There is an enormous push, particularly from the HASS, the Humanities and Social Sciences Lobby, for JRG Job Ready graduates funding to be unravelled and go back to the same thing. There's a problem with undoing it. It was technically very well designed, very well indeed designed, and undoing it in terms of university funding, say, for the next three or four years would be quite difficult. Whether the government will do it now or signal it's going to do it, I don't know. Whether it will just leave it as it is and focus on expanding access for disadvantaged people is another question. Underpinning all of this is what, People will say to the Prime Minister, and that is, have you seen the price of submarines? Because there are clearly demands on the public purse that weren't there 10 years ago.
2: The universities want change to student contributions. The Group of Eight and the Australian Technology Network want a flat fee structure, so like Hex started out with. The Innovative Research Universities Group wants a two- or three-tiered structure, with prices varying according to graduate outcomes. Andrew Norton,
4: what do you want? So my own view is that the flat charge is intuitively appealing in the sense that it it sounds like the burdens are being placed fairly evenly across all graduates but my argument is that's not really the case because because our loans are uh, the repayment is based on your income it means that people on high incomes obviously repay more each year And so what would you get with a flat system is, for example, go back to the arts graduate example, they would take much more time to repay than a law graduate with the same amount of debt, because on average, their incomes are lower. Mm. And so my view is that the student contributions should be set with repayment times in mind. So the goal here is not so much to have a flat dollar amount, but to have a fairly flat time amount of work. that it'll take to repay your debt. And that would again put arts back in the lowest student contribution band that it used to, and law would be in the highest one, because on average law graduates earn a lot more than arts graduates, they'd be able to repay their debt more quickly.
2: And this wouldn't just work for the students.
4: So for the government, the student loan scheme really has two major costs. Uh, One of these is the debt that's not expected to be repaid, which is probably about 15% of the amount lent each year, which is probably about $800 million in recent years. The other is, normally, is the interest cost on holding this $80 billion or so of debt. So effectively, the government is borrowing on the the bond markets uh, and then relending to students at CPI. Now, this year, we had the very unusual situation that the CPI was higher than the bond rate, but in most other years the bond rate has been above the CPI and so effectively the government is losing money by having all this debt on its books. My view is that the multi-tiered system, particularly compared to the the, the job ready graduates version, would speed up repayments. That would mean there'd be less bad debt. I'm particularly worried about some arts graduates who may not repay in the time they've got in their careers. And because repayment would be faster, there'd be less outstanding debt and therefore lower interest subsidies. So I think this is a rare case in this where both the students and the government would be better off on average.
2: Not only that, Andrew says, it would be better for unis too. Their primary concern isn't the student contribution, it's the total funding.
4: But there is a, a special case where the student contribution does matter. And the reason for this is that universities have a capped amount of total funding from the government each year. And if they enrol students above that, they still receive the student contribution, but they don't get any government subsidy for that student. And so on the very low student contributions, such as $4,000 per year, they're quite possibly losing money on those additional students, which is a disincentive to increase their enrolments. Whereas a more evenly distributed set of charges, it's much less likely that they will lose money on taking additional students. And even though this is not the most important reason for the change, it's something to keep in mind when we want a, a flexible higher ed system that can respond to changes in student demand.
2: We'll know whether the government favours this approach. Actually, we'll know whether it's particularly interested in solving the hex problem in the next week or so when the minister releases the interim report. But Stephen Matchett, you think the government's more focused on making higher education more accessible to our least advantaged young people.
3: And I suspect combining um, closer relations between higher education and further education. My guess is that we will see in the Accord document um, ways of trying to unite the two systems to create something of a seamless post-secondary system where the divide between universities and VocEd, largely TAFE, Mm -hmm. um, where the boundaries are less defined, where it is easier to cross institutional lines. So that push
2: from the Greens, from the students, to freeze indexation of HECS, is this a situation where the government decides which part of its constituency it's going to look after?
3: I think that's inevitable in, in in a multipolar portfolio like this, but yeah, I think so, yeah. You wouldn't want to argue this too forcefully, but Sometimes I have a sense that Labor federally has in some ways written off the university sector electorally in the sense that uh, the Greens are very powerful amongst, amongst students and to an extent amongst academics. And, you know, nothing you ever do is going to make everybody happy. So they may be thinking that there is a certain amount of pain that they will have to wear inevitably. We'll
2: know more soon. Whatever the government decides... HEX has pretty much done what it was supposed to do.
4: In some ways, it's been too successful. That's why I've got so many people holding debts. So it was designed to remove the upfront cost barrier of studying in higher education and to finance an expansion of the system without breaking the federal government's budget. And so on that, it's really been, I think, spectacularly successful that in the last year of free education in 1988, about 19% of 19-year-olds were at university Rose was about 42% in 2020. So that's a very dramatic uh, social change. But where I say it might be too successful is that you know, possibly people aren't thinking clearly enough about the implications of holding this debt and what it means for their future income, their ability to buy a house and start a family and all these things. And so possibly there needs to be a better balance between not having any barriers to actually doing degrees that you think will benefit you while also thinking carefully about the consequences of taking on significant amounts of debt.
2: For decades, we've framed HECS as the best loan you'll ever get, if you don't count anything from mum and dad. Maybe we need to tweak that a bit. Gabrielle, how well did you understand that your HECS debt was going to go up?
1: Definitely not. Definitely not. I had no idea what indexation was. I knew that it was an interest-free loan. And so that was the thing that was constantly pushed to us. It's interest-free, interest-free, interest-free. And every time you kind of pass that census date at university, that date when your fees actually kick in and you commit to it, there's no paperwork or no, maybe there is, <laughs> and I just ignored it. But the terms and conditions, it's it seems like you're too young and too naive to fully understand the decision that you're making and the impact that that's going to have on the rest of your life.
2: So do you think... That how it's communicated at the beginning should be better.
0: I do think that they should be a bit more upfront about it because it's literally the whole the last two years of your life. They're really like, "Hex is great," and really, guys, you don't have to worry about it until you're much late, older and blah 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 blah. I think it would be better if it, they were like, "Look, it's generally interest free, but eventually it'll be something that you should look into and have a big think about because it, it goes up." Every year.
2: That's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidy.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.